0: Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on this Aloha Friday, February 23rd. Hawaii Talks on the Conversation. Airports, harbors, and rail. Those were the stops for U.S. Transportation Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg while on Oahu this week. It was a chance to see where federal infrastructure monies are being spent. Rental woes on Maui. More stories are circulating about renters facing eviction. Do landlords see dollar signs? And is the system hurting Peter to pay Paul? And the first woman honored with a Hawaii Architecture Award, she shares how Lincoln Logs and, and Blocks laid the foundation for 50 years in the industry. Plus, uh, Hana Ho to Alice Ball, a pioneering scientist, as we mark Black History Month. you tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A whirlwind tour for U.S. Transportation Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg to see how federal dollars are being spent and where the needs are great. The trip started with a rail ride with the mayor and Hart officials on Skyline. The $10 billion rail system is shiny and new, but it struggles with low ridership since its opening in July. It doesn't yet reach any major hubs uh, Pete Buttigieg also got a tour of Honolulu Harbor, our lifeline for goods and supplies. It included a blessing at the Kapalama Container Terminal, which is slated to open in the first part of next year. The redo of the storage facility is to reduce congestion. The half-a-billion-dollar project is a cornerstone of the harbor modernization plan. The day-long tour ended at the Daniel K. Inouye International Airport with a look at the runway fixes. State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen briefed us about the work that's begun to repave the shoulder of the run- uh, runway and replace the aging lights. Those runways were repaved last year, a massive project that stalled other highway projects to ensure that there was enough asphalt available on island to complete the job.
1: So when we started looking at shutting down different um, taxiways in areas,
2: they asked us not to because huh. didn't allow them to access the airfield because of, right. of pockets that were,
1: were in bad condition. So working with... Um, uh, Meredith Thurgood now uh, on the Navy side because it's a joint base and, and with um, the Air Force to try and see how we can expedite funding in that area and if we can be agents for construction the deal will do it. Okay. So good partnerships there. And uh, to what extent can you keep a left in service while all this... Works going so when we actually just finished this up so this whole time we kept it in service we only shut it down for 30 days really yeah for a 30 day period we took all the asphalt from the from the state mm-hmm. We told everybody else you are gonna have to you' have to hold your projects because all the asphalt went in this area wow. So we did 3,000 feet of concrete and the rest of it was asphalt PMA um, and the, the industry was, was, was great in making sure that we got everything done timely.
0: This trip for, transportation, for the Transportation Secretary was a chance to see, with his own eyes, the impact of federal infrastructure funding and to see the needs statewide uh, from the Big Island bridges to the highways in Maui and Kauai. A Buddha judge told HPR he had only visited the islands once on a vacation to Kona, so this was his first chance to see Maui and Oahu. We asked about what he was struck by over his two-day visit.
1: Really just the unique needs and the opportunities here. Uh, You know, people in Hawaii count on so many goods being shipped in through the port. So I was glad we had a chance to see the harbor. Uh, People, especially in Honolulu, are facing a crunch when it comes to housing and affordability. That's one of the reasons I wanted to see the transit line that's being set up, because that can actually help make it easier for people to have more options uh, by changing the way you commute. It can actually help uh, in an indirect way with housing. And of course, uh, aviation is so important to uh, a state uh, located where Hawaii is. So seeing directly the visions for improving this facility and where those federal dollars that we're bringing through the Biden infrastructure plan, seeing where those dollars are gonna go, uh, was was, uh, really great too. It's been a really uh, informative visit. And yesterday on Maui had the opportunity to see the devastation that those wildfires uh, wreaked on the community, but also the resilience of the community and uh, and why it's so important for us to be supporting them as an administration.
0: Yeah, I think uh, resiliency is something that is so important for an island community, you know, whether it's Maui or here on Oahu, you know, when any of these vital links are disrupted, we're kind of at the mercy, you know, of things getting back together again.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of places where there's a single point of dependency. Uh, One example is the the port that is so vital. Uh, Things that go all across the state uh, first come in through that port in Honolulu. Another example is uh, what we saw in terms of the Honoa Highway in Maui, which is really the only uh connection that that many in the west have to the rest of the island which is part of why we're uh, bringing funds to help elevate it so that it's less likely to be overtaken by sea level rise especially those king tides that are happening more and more often so many places where there's no alternatives. so we're trying to either create alternatives or make sure that what you do have here can be more resilient whether it's an airport a road or a port
0: and i'm just curious what were you, what was the takeaway uh, for you when you went on skyline today
1: Uh, Well, uh, I saw a very impressive, very modern new system. I also know there's been a lot of frustration and impatience getting that up and running. So uh, I was encouraged to see that now it very much is. I I saw it with my own eyes, wrote on it. Of course, much of the value of that system will come from the stations that are going to be added in the future. Uh, So we're pleased to be able to fund that work and we wanna work closely with uh, Hawaii to make sure that uh, those get delivered.
0: Yeah, I know when the next leg of the route is open that's key because of all the shipyard construction that's going on at pearl harbor and you know those workers have have to have some, some way to get to work because they're, they're gonna be hiring thousands of people.
1: That's right, you have a lot of jobs, a lot of economic growth, and uh, therefore a lot of need to get around. And you know, good transit benefits everybody. Even if you don't use it, you benefit because the roads that you do use are less congested. But I also hope a modern system like this really becomes a means of choice for people to uh, get around, whether they have a car or not. A lot of thought and a lot of expense has gone into trying to get it right the first time with a very modern system. Uh, And my hope is the more people have the experience of using it, especially when those new routes get added, uh, the more people are gonna like it.
0: Is there anything you were surprised by as you you know, took this first trip here through Honolulu?
1: Well, I was very impressed by the teamwork that goes on here, uh, both uh, uh, among communities uh, and and their leadership, uh, sitting down with the mayors, uh, seeing how the mayors and the state work together, but also with their federal partners. Uh, Our Department of Transportation has a lot of personnel on the ground here, from the Federal Aviation Administration to the Federal Highway Administration and others. And I know there are, there are always challenges uh, to, to overcome when you have different units of government trying to work together. But I saw a very strong level of collaboration that impressed me because uh, you can't take this for granted. It certainly doesn't exist everywhere that I go.
0: And there was just recently, you know, some concern about the um, security at the ports, you know, with the cranes that were being made in China. And you know, my understanding is that we're not so much affected by that. I think Matson gets its, its cranes from elsewhere, but. It's just the vulnerabilities, I think, that maybe, I don't know, are, are they striking to you as, as you go from state to state?
1: Yeah, it's something I discussed with the uh, uh, the, the port leadership and uh, something we're looking at everywhere we go. Uh, look, every form of transportation is becoming more and more interwoven with technology. That can be a good thing, but it does create new vulnerabilities. And we as a country need to be sure that our critical infrastructure is secure. That's been a big uh, focus for President Biden. That's something our department's paying a lot of attention to, working with our partners in the Department of Homeland Security and other cyber experts to try to safeguard that infrastructure because it is a concern whether we're talking about uh, port equipment uh, or any other piece of transportation infrastructure we count on every day.
0: And then is there anything else just as far as uh, future uh, federal dollars uh, that might come our way?
1: Yeah, we had a lot of good news this week, and I think we'll see more where this came from. I can't always predict what the next project will be, uh, partly because we don't uh, devise the projects in Washington. We count on the communities in the state to bring us their projects, and then we fund as many as we can. Our our philosophy is that the good ideas don't all come from Washington, but more of the money should. And that's really how President Biden's infrastructure plan has worked. Uh, It's how we've been able to support things from the uh, Ring Road bridges on the Big Island to the Honorapiuani upgrade on on Maui. to the airport work happening right here, and I'm sure that pattern will continue. Yeah.
0: And anything else that you, I guess, were struck
1: by today? Uh, just that, that it's an extraordinary place with incredibly welcoming people uh, who are also very uh, uh, determined to improve transportation infrastructure and, and face some of the biggest challenges that people here are confronting, uh, including affordability uh, and, uh, and and quality of life issues that better transportation can help with.
0: Uh, That was a conversation that we had with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who returned to the mainland last night. Uh, While this was a rare chance to show off what federal dollars are paying for, it also provided a firsthand look at the vulnerabilities of our island state uh, and our need to modernize our lifelines, our highways, bridges, harbors, and airports.
3: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Shapiro. I'm Richard Leiter. We're co-authors of
4: Who
5: Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about The Path of Purposeful Aging.
4: Sunday morning at 11.
3: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
0: It may be an unintended consequence. Some Maui residents believe they are being evicted to make way for families displaced by the wildfires. The higher rents being paid by government programs have triggered concerns about the ripple effect across the community. HVR reporter Catherine kluet Pactel joins us to talk about this. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Yes, yeah, so you were at a news conference that was called by a, a number of Maui residents yesterday.
6: Yeah, so the Maui Tenants and Workers Association uh, is a group that works to support and educate renters on their rights. And as we know, there is currently the governor's ninth emergency proclamation on wildfires, which does include a moratorium on evictions. But some residents are saying they're still facing evictions. Many believe, as you said, it's so that their landlords can rent to fire victims as part of FEMA's direct lease program, which does give them uh, some more money in their pocket and um, you know it's hard to prove that that's why they're being evicted but there are some loopholes within the moratorium which uh, many renters believe their landlords are using to um, to get them out at this point. Um, that moratorium is currently in effect until March 5th. Um, the governor's office did tell me that it will likely get extended. The intent is to um, Continue that emergency proclamation as as long as needed, uh, but folks are are still feeling those effects. Lori Rabonis and her family have lived in their Kahului rental for the past five years, and her landlord has been trying to evict her for the past six months.
7: From August, I've been trying to look for a house, and I paid like almost about four or five hundred dollars on application fees, and they're checking my credit, different realtor companies. And finally, one of the realtors called me back and told me to stop um, looking. And so I said, "Why? Wow, I really need a house. And she said that most of their people who own the home, they want the housing will go to a Lahaina family. So I was like, okay. So she asked me, are you from Lahaina? I said, no, I'm just getting evicted. And so she told me... If you see our name that we're renting out houses, the realtor's name, don't go on it because they're not going to rent to anybody unless you're a Lahaina victim. So I tried another realtor. She called me back and said, you know what? Don't try to apply because you're wasting your money on us. We're not going to rent. We're not going to rent to you. You need to be a Lahaina victim.
0: Oh, that just is heartbreaking
6: it is and you know Rabana said she feels for lahaina residents her husband um worked in lahaina and lost his job uh but she feels like you know they're victims now too of of this housing crisis on maui which of course existed prior to the fires and is now just incredibly exacerbated to the point where they can't find any place to live she said she tried going to the maui mall where they have you know resources for for folks from the uh fire victims her husband was able to get unemployment but they couldn't get any help with housing um they've checked with churches neighbors friends craigslist i mean she's gone through just the whole list of options over the past six months um that her landlord has been threatening different avenues of trying to evict them um uh said she did get help from the maui tenants and workers association to stand up for her rights as a renter she hasn't been evicted yet but she does fear it's coming there's 17
7: in my house i have my grandchildren i have foster kids i have all my all my kids and we face eviction and we feel that we i'm afraid march 5th is coming up i'm praying that governor josh green extend the proclamation i know my landlord is waiting she's like march 5th is gonna come I'm going to give you a 21-day notice, and you guys are going to have to be evicted by the end of the month. And I'm like, no, nope, I know my rights. It's 45 days. you got to give me 45 days. And even though if we split apart with my family, my kids wouldn't, you know, if they found them one house, not even them can find a home, even a two-bedroom. It's listed on Craigslist. It's listed on Facebook. But we are not from Lahaina. But nobody wants to rent from us so i'm born and raised here you know and i feel like i have to go to another state my husband wants to move but this is all we know we're from hawaii we live paycheck to paycheck we pay our bills we pay our rent on time and you know i cannot have us be on the beach and i'm scared i'm scared that i'm going to be homeless And these two foster boys that I have is afraid because they've been there. They've done that, you know, and they know the life out there.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, especially when you've got like a multi-generational family, you know, large families that you're dealing with.
6: Tough. Right. And she said, you know, even, even trying to split up their family and look for, you know, smaller homes, they, you know, haven't had luck. Alan Lloyd is an organizer of the Maui Tenants and Workers Association, and though there are several agencies working to investigate complaints that are filed against landlords um, for eviction violations, he says many tenants fear retaliation from their landlords if they do go ahead and report it, so many are going unreported. Proving landlords are evicting in favor of FEMA money is also really hard to prove, because You know, they use the pretext of one of the loopholes of that moratorium for eviction. And Lloyd explains.
4: So because the eviction moratorium by the governor has loopholes, of which there's four of them, um, we have people getting evicted. So the loopholes are, if I'm selling my house, I can evict my tenant. If I'm renovating my house, I can evict my tenant. If I'm going to move in my immediate family member, I can evict my tenant. If my lease to my tenant runs out, I can evict my tenant. The solution is called just cause eviction. So just cause eviction ordinance means a tenant can only be evicted for certain reasons. So as an example, if they don't pay their rent, they can be evicted. If they destroy where they're living, they can be evicted. Otherwise... Uh, a tenant cannot be evicted. So one of our demands are to extend that existing moratorium because if they don't, then there'll be more people evicted. Second one is to fill those loopholes, and then the third one is to pass either on an emergency basis because there is an emergency. Right? There's a wildfire emergency, and there's an affordable housing emergency, both declared by the governor and the mayor. So. While there's this emergency, the third demand is that there should be a just cause eviction ordinance.
0: Yeah, and, you know, just before we went on the air, the governor did sign, you know, the uh, fifth emergency proclamation uh, with affordable housing. And so I guess that bumps it to April, uh, April 20th. But still, that's, I'm sure, not much consolation for families that are, you know, facing eviction.
6: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so the the Tenants Association is requesting that these loopholes be closed to help protect, um, you know, renters uh, more from their landlords who are trying to use those loopholes to, you know, maybe get that FEMA money. FEMA is rejecting properties that legally force tenants out to gain higher rents from the direct lease program. So they are, uh, you know, trying to take a stand on it. The agency is accepting reports alleging unlawful evictions that will be investigated by state and federal authorities. The Department of the Attorney General is also looking into complaints of possible violations to the emergency proclamation. I was told yesterday they have 15 complaints so far uh, concerning FEMA uh, funding evictions and reports can be sent to Hawaii AG at Hawaii.gov and the Maui Tenants and Workers Association also has a renter's hotline. That people can call for uh, advice and learning their rights.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. That's good information for uh, those families to have. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. We've been talking to uh, HBR's uh, reporter, Catherine kluet pactel about a story uh, about renters on Maui facing eviction in light of an already tight market.
1: When you support HPR, you support locally produced programs featuring locally produced music, including Kani Kapila Sunday. Hello,
8: everyone, and welcome to Kani Kapila Sunday. I'm Kaylee Iloma, and I'm so happy to be with you again on a Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. to offer you great Hawaiian music from all periods. Hawaii Kula Ivi.
7: Aloha nui kako. You are tuned in to member-supported Hawaii Public Radio 1's Hawaii Kulaivi. Ovo no keyo, DJ Mermaid, Pedro Okamura
1: And Malka Tamakai. This is to Tamakai. I'm your host, Roger Bong. Your support brings the music of Hawaii to the world. Support Hawaiian and local music programs on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: now to take a look at our mailbox and hear from our listeners. When HBI reporter Ashley Mazua covered the issue of recreational marijuana at the Hawaii State Legislature last week, we got this from a listener named Andrew. Hello, I believe that the legalization of recreational marijuana is reasonable, if not long overdue, especially compared to other states across the country. The opposition to this effort is likely ignoring the reality that the people who would use newly legalized cannabis are likely already using it. Therefore, legalization would simply make the products and their use safer, more regulated, and with more appropriate public education. Cannabis would be easier to access for those who could benefit from it and legalization would bring its use above board in line with other states' safe commercial practices. It seems the opposition is more based in fear and misunderstanding than in facts. Another listener commented about our Red Hill defueling stories as the new Navy Closure Task Force Red Hill continues to work on facility cleanup. Hello. One thing I don't recall hearing or reading in any coverage is the significant benefit the Navy and the Department of Defense has received from the insistence of folks like Ernie allowed that the facility be shut down and the tanks drained. Until he actually tried to empty the tanks, the Navy was insistent that Red Hill was of great strategic military importance, only to realize that in the event of a real war, it would take years to get the fuel out of the tanks. Consider that the entirety of the U.S. active involvement in World War II spanned just over three and a half years. Thanks to Lau and others, the uh, the Navy and the DOD learned that their fuel distribution capabilities were inadequate. With that knowledge, they are now able to make better, more informed plans for the defense of our country. In addition to a mea culpa to all of Oahu, the Navy and the DOD thus owes a big mahalo to Ernie Lau and everyone else who pushed for them to shut down the Red Hill Fuel Storage Facility for making them aware of this significant flaw in their defense plans. And that was sent by Nobu Nakamoto thanks for that feedback If you want to share your thoughts or questions, email us at talkback at org or call our talkback line 8087928217. the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. <laughs> Recently, while exploring Google Maps, we came across the city of Hawaiian Gardens. You may not have heard of it before. It's not located in the 808 state. This got us curious, and we started digging to learn more about this municipality. According to historian Tom Jacobs, it was during the 1920s that a savvy farmer started a small concession stand selling drinks and sandwiches to passing travelers. It was simple, a bamboo frame covered with palm fronds. He named his establishment Hawaiian Gardens, and customers enjoyed the added luxury of two palm-thatched outhouses in the back. Uh, Prohibition probably contributed uh, to the steady clientele. Rumor had it that upon request, a simple soda could be hardened up with some local moonshine. The Quaint shack disappeared after the repeal of Prohibition, but the name stuck. Over the decades, the residential population had grown to the point that community leaders realized they were no longer just a rural town. In April 1964, they incorporated and became the City of Hawaiian Gardens. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us which state it's located in? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HBR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Narete Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareteHawaii.com
0: HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HPR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at HawaiiPublicRadio.org/slash jobs.
3: Support for HPR comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu offering wood flooring from UA floors. Its Hawaiian collection of engineered wood features mango and monkey pod from Hawaii Island. pacam
0: who resident and architect Carol Sakata will make history tomorrow. She'll be the first woman to receive the American Institute of Architects Hawaii State Council Medal of Honor. It's the organization's highest award and given to those who have significantly advanced the profession and whose leadership provides inspiration to others. Sakata has been an architect for more than 50 years and is the principal of the local firm CDS International Architects. Its credits include the Grand Wailea in Maui and Tamarin Park in downtown Honolulu. The Conversations Russell Subbiano got the chance to talk with Sakata in our studio recently.
9: Is being an architect something that you've always wanted to do or something that you kind of discovered a little bit later in life?
8: Pretty much for some reason I always wanted to do it. My first kind of recognition that this is what I wanted to do was in third grade plus or minus minus. and I used to draw actually just elevations of houses. Because we would travel, you know, go places by car a lot and always looking out the window, observing things. My grandmother was a a trained artist and my grandfather was a professional photographer. So my sister and I were always geared to, you know, what's around us, observing, taking note of things. Growing up in Seattle, I it's a city so you go down streets wherever and you're going by all kinds of buildings and for some reason i guess at that age houses were a scale that i could identify with so i would kind of make up elevations of houses what shape is the roof where are the windows how big are they things like that and then later on got involved in doing things more three-dimensionally we had Lincoln logs and some plastic blocks that were the forerunner of Legos, mm-hmm. but they came with like little plastic doors and windows so you could build little buildings and, you know, put in doors and windows. And when putting them on a level surface wasn't interesting enough, then I'd tilt up a piece of plywood and try to build one that was going up at <laughs> the side of a hill. So it just, you know, kind of grew from there. My parents would frequently take us to open houses of new homes because the Seattle Times had a monthly, I think, uh, Sunday magazine section that featured an architect-designed home, and then it was usually open for visits. It wasn't like model houses these days where it had all the furniture and everything. It was basically just the empty house, but you could really see the design, the setting, you know, how it was designed with to fit in the environment and so forth. So I found all those things very interesting and then just kind of kept going from there. My mother though was surprised when I was ready to go to college. I was accepted to University of Washington, which was handy because we didn't have a lot of money but it was very close to where we lived in Seattle and my dad worked there so I had free transportation and I just enrolled in the architecture school and was accepted. My mother said, "Oh, I guess you were serious." <laughs> you know, all, all that time she thought it would probably, you know, fade away for something else. But so I just kind of stuck with it.
9: I know you went to the University of Hawaii at Manoa after attending University of Washington. What drew you to Hawaii?
8: Um, my husband. He's a local boy. He was born and raised here, and went to the mainland for college, and so I met him at University of Washington. We were both in architecture, so we studied together, and kind of what I tell people is I followed him home from school, and that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I got here.
9: Some of the structures your firm has been a part of designing Pawahi Tower in downtown Honolulu, which includes Tamarind Park, as well as the Grand Wailea Resort on Maui and the rehabilitation of the Moana Surfrider Hotel in Waikiki, it seems that architecture is more than just putting together four walls and a roof. How much of it is math and adhering to code, and how much of it is art and tapping into your creativity?
8: All of those things are obviously involved, but when you're building buildings and designing buildings for someone else to build, actually, and codes are very important because there's a you know very significant life safety aspect to architecture and engineering you want to make sure that you know your buildings aren't going to fall down because that is a possibility and sometimes there are those kinds of failures mm-hmm. so as an architect we don't design the structural system but we need to know enough about it to understand the basics and also with mechanical and electrical and other disciplines to be able to work with the engineers that specialize in those fields and integrate all that into the building and then you have whatever the intended use is the owner's ideas about how they want to operate the building what functions go on there there's just a lot of things and the design actually i mean there are the physical aspects of design a lot of architects gravitate toward that being fairly central To what they do in designing a building. And some architects are, you know, have a recognizable style that you can tell whose building that is, or maybe who's copying who. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, I guess maybe I'm more of a bean counter kind of person who likes details, is the problem, so to speak, the challenge of putting a whole building together and getting it out on time, on budget, meeting the codes, meeting the owner's needs and goals is actually a design problem. You're always jockeying so many different things. And my particular specialty kind of is in the back office where we were working with the main designer of the building and creating all of the documentation that's necessary to convey that design in a technical sense to a contractor so that the contractor can build it. There's just a whole lot of things that go on behind the scenes and that's kind of always been the focus of my career is the more internal aspects of the practice.
9: Conceptualizing and designing a structure doesn't seem to depend on a person's physical strength or prowess. All you really need is like a brain and some hands, right? A brain to think of something and then the hands to to bring it out. And a voice to express it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it seems like it should be something that both men and women can do. You've been an architect for 50 years. How have you seen the industry evolve in that time in terms of making room for women? It's definitely gotten to be more inclusive, but there's still
8: a long way to go in that regard. And there's a lot of things that may potentially turn women off from the profession. What we've seen in recent decades is a lot of women are going to architecture school, but there's a fairly significant drop-off between the number of women attending, which can be as much as 50% or more of any given class in any given architecture school, to only about 30% 30% or so of the licensed architects in the U.S. being women. Whether they get sidetracked by family or you know other kinds of things that they want to pursue, whether they just use architecture as a foundation and apply it to other kinds of endeavors, it, it's really hard to say. And I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there's places where It's harder for women to make inroads and women to make inroads at upper levels of large firms, especially on the mainland, but it's not unheard of. It's the more women you see, the more women role models there are, the more people get used to seeing women in those kinds of roles. So I I think it's a very gradual thing, but there were not many. When I got started, when I graduated from University of Washington, Well, it's a kind of a grueling education, and by the time we graduated, there were only about 33 students left in the class that started out fairly large, and and of which three were women, 10%. When I first joined the American Institute of Architects in 1974, there were only about 250 women members in the entire country of AIA. The profession is a lot bigger now. Than it was then but still i think it hovers around in the near 30 percent or in the low 30 percent of okay. total
9: the aia medal of honor is given to an architect who has significantly advanced the profession of architecture and whose leadership provides an inspiration to fellow practitioners what does it mean to you to be recognized this way for your contributions to the industry in our state
8: it's a very humbling experience and an award that I, I never thought I would see my name attached to. And a lot of that is because most of the people who've received this award in the past are architects who are relatively speaking household names or at least extremely well-known in the community like Vladimir Osipov, Frank Haynes from Architects Hawaii, So it's actually very humbling to be considered to be part of that group. And I think I'm the first one who has had such a technical, almost internal career, though I've done a lot of professional service over the years as well, and the teaching and serving on the state licensing board. So I've kind of, you know, been working in a lot of areas to advance the profession generally. But it's nice, but it's something that I, you know, never thought I would ever receive.
9: Well, congratulations on being the recipient of the Medal of Honor this year. I really enjoyed our conversation, so thank you. Oh,
8: thank you, I enjoyed it also.
0: And that was local architect Carol Sakata talking with HBR's Russell SubiONO. Sakata will receive the Medal of Honor tomorrow night from the AIA Hawaii State Council. She is the 11th person and the first woman in the council's 35 history to receive its highest award.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dowling Family Charitable Fund, Dowling Company, for more than three decades working to develop housing projects for the Maui community and committed to building in balance. An HPR supporter since 2001. This weekend, HPR presents the Makaha Sons. The first two shows are sold out, so we're adding a third show this Saturday at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: It's time for the answer to our backyard quiz. Earlier in the show, we told you about a city on the continent named Hawaiian Gardens. During the 1920s, the area it sits on was a a rural woody marshland that was sparsely populated, a place where people hunted or watered their horses and cattle. It was in this wild space that an intrepid businessman decided to set up shop. Historians don't remember his name, but they do know he built a small concession stand out of bamboo and palm fronds. He called his establishment Hawaiian Gardens. It was a favorite rest stop for travelers during this time of Prohibition, in large part because a simple soda could be hardened up with locally brewed moonshine. Repeat customers and word of mouth soon turned the little stand into a landmark. The business disappeared following the repeal of Prohibition, but the name stuck, and the surrounding town was called Hawaiian Gardens. In 1964, it became the 75th city in California, incorporated into the surrounding Los Angeles-Long Beach metro area. And our winner, Pete from Moanalua, got it right. It was our first-time winner. And that is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. We celebrate Black History Month. We honore a a story about Alice Ball, a pioneering scientist who was the University of Hawaii's first African-American graduate and first woman to obtain her master's in chemistry. At the age of 23, Ball discovered that using Chalmugra tree oil was an effective treatment for leprosy or Hansen's disease. In 2020, her story was the subject of the the Ball Method, a short narrative film that debuted at the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles. It was featured on Science Friday, and host Ira Flato interviewed film director uh, Dagmawi Abebe about the project. Here's a short excerpt
2: was uh, an African-American woman born in 1892. She went to the University of Hawaii, which used to be called the College of Hawaii back then.
1: How did she get to focused on helping people with leprosy?
2: Um, well, it started with her thesis, her master's thesis, and uh, Dr. Harry Holman, who was an assistant surgeon in Kali Hospital, where they used to take care of patients with leprosy, he read her thesis, and he saw that the method that she was using on the Kava plant on her thesis was could be helping could help them get uh, the injectable solution that he was looking for for the uh, leprosy patients.
1: So you chronicle in the book how she sort of stumbled on the answer to making the injectable solution. How how close is that to the truth? I mean, I know you have literary license and writing a plot for a movie, but were you, yeah. were you able to find out what really happened?
2: Yes. I, I think uh, one of the important processes for her to find it was letting the uh, the cholmogric acid uh, staying cold for overnight. And so that was one of the things that I could show visually in the film without getting too deep into the chemistry. Um, so that's basically what I, had, I was trying to connect.
1: And in fact, we have a, to give a little pe- people a t- little taste of the film, we have a, that pivotal scene in which he has a flash of insight.
6: Dr. Holman! We have to freeze it! That's how we get the esters to crystallize. We've been doing it wrong the whole time. Heating it doesn't make it faster. It only degrades the acid before it has time to combine with the ethanol. If if we can stop the ferry today, they might have a chance.
1: I'll arrange a test for tomorrow morning, okay? Wow, and of course, that worked, right?
2: Yes, (laughs) yes. Um, yeah, because I believe that leaving it in the cold was preventing the acid from degrading, so that it had enough time to uh, for the acids to crystallize and be filtered, um, and that's that's basically how she was able to find the treatments.
0: That was director Dagmawi Abebe. Uh, Thanks to Science Friday producer Charles Bergquist and host Ira Flato. You can watch Abebe's uh, short narrative on Amazon Prime, Alice Ball's research fascinated retired University of Hawaii librarian Paul Wormager. Uh, Much of what we know about her is due to his extensive work on her biography, which includes her work with Molokai's Kalopapa patients.
5: She was probably the leading figure in making life for leprosy victims. And matter of fact, she probably was the first person in the world to give leprosy patients true hope that they could be cured. And there were, like I said, the early cases could be cured. Advanced cases, no. That had to wait for the sulfa drugs.
0: And why is it so important for you as a librarian and, a, and a, a lover of history and stories that she gets a recognition for uh, her contributions here?
5: Well, I think it's more than that. It's just a human nature reaction. When you see an injustice, you want to try to change that. And that's how, when I found out that nobody knew Alice Ball, she was not in the literature at all, that nobody gave her credit. That really upset me and still bothers me to this day. So whatever recognition I can scrounge up, um, that will be paying our dues, humanity's dues, to a woman who really did so much for other people. People had known that the tree was used to treat leprosy you know, 2,000 and more years ago. Actually, some people believe it was even used by the Egyptians going way, way back. And again, that kind of points to the usefulness of folk medicine. There is some some basis for it because if people try something and it works, it works.
0: It has medicinal value.
5: Yes. And of course, they didn't understand why you know, the chemical compound—just that it helped their skin—might probably help people with early leprosy. And so, it was the fact that I don't think she started out; her mission wasn't to find a cure for leprosy. It was that a physician presented her with a problem they were having in that he felt, and I think Holloman knew, that there was a value in shemugra, but their mode of using it was wrong. It was painful, upsetting, and so he thought if they could get a injectable form of shemugra oil, it isn't actually the oil itself, it's the components they removed from shemugra oil. There's two acids and they are the ones that have that antibacterial uh, effect. So she was trying to f- fix a chemical problem. She saw it from a, chemical, from a chemist's point of view. And uh, actually probably her going to Kalihi, you know to as part of her, her master's thesis, she saw firsthand what, how people were suffering from the disease. So I think that was probably another motivation, too, than that she worked so hard to finally make that chemical discovery just by sheer grit, I guess.
0: And in your research, you found that uh, while she discovered this ball method of using this oil, uh, that she wasn't given the proper acknowledgement you know, that her contribution to, to science and uh, what she discovered just wasn't acknowledged.
5: Yes, it was easily overlooked, I think. Um, if we look back at the conditions then, she was female, she was young, she was African-American. All those were not traits that you associate with somebody who's found a cure. Um, and then on top of it, there was the pressure that um, the university or the College of Hawaii was under at that time. Then, from people demanding, pleading for you know samples for this, and so they just rushed ahead. Um, Dr. Dean Arthur Dean picked up what she had done and went with it, and just you know went on. And forgot about who had actually started it. Nobody bothered to go back and say, Well, who made this? And not until nineteen twenty two did Holloman publish that article that brought it to light. But by then it was just common common known that, well, you know, Dean did this and Dean did that, and nobody really put Alice where she should have been.
0: So what was the Ball Method became the Dean Method?
5: And it wasn't by Dean himself. He never called it the Dean Method. So we have to be fair to Dean. It wasn't that he robbed her. It was when he published it. As you know, when you publish something, then people want to refer to it in their work. They don't go through the long process of this is how you know, mix this and this together. So they nicknamed it the Dean Method. And everybody who read the you know the science the chemistry journals would know, of course. Well, that means Arthur Dean d- did it. So it wasn't that it was a malicious thing. It was just how things happen. If you do something, somebody will write about you. But then they name it after you. Right.
0: But unfairly, unfair. nobody gave uh, Alice Ball credit for what she
5: discovered because nobody knew about her. You know, she did it and then disappeared. And actually physically but also um, in people's minds because she was just you know she was there for a year and a half and then gone.
0: And you have created a exhibit up on the fifth floor in her honor just to make sure that her story gets told.
5: Yes and I also funded an Alice Ball scholarship at UH and now it's it's in its third year and students are benefit by it because I wanted to try to encourage more women and people of color to go into the sciences.
0: That was uh, on a ho of a conversation we had with retired UH librarian uh, Paul Ormager who is writing a book on Alice Ball. He helped establish the Alice Augusta Ball Endowed Scholarship for Underrepresented Minority Students Who want to enter the science field. In 2000, February uh, 29th was set aside as a day to remember Ball in Hawaii, but it didn't feel right to just remember her on leap year. So two years ago, Governor Ige signed a proclamation moving Alice Ball Day to February 28th. Well, that's it for this Aloha Friday coming up next week. Bamboo Ridge Press celebrates 45 years of elevating local voices and local stories. Got a Bamboo Ridge story to share with us? Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, with help from Savannah Harriman-Pote and Maddie Bender. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.